One-Time-Run-Podcast. Well, here we are, our 10-year anniversary, and we're working with Doubleday and Cartwright on um, a new, new logo that will be revealed, um, also a bunch of other cool stuff like this really awesome zine. And we're here today with Sam Hockley-Smith and Dan Armand, my uh, co-founder and partner at One Time Run. Sam is a uh, you know, senior journalist, writer, um, aficionado, collector, and all of the things that are fun about people. Sam has those traits, and he's here to ask us the questions and turn the tables on us. So, Sam, I'm going to turn it over to you. Thank you so much. Uh, so I thought I wanted to talk to you guys really about just the history of One Time Run, how you guys met, just really the origin story. Uh, so I thought maybe we could start um, by each of you telling me about your respective interests in art. Like, at what point did you become interested? And do you remember that first time art, like some piece of art really connected with you? Did you want to make it? Were you making it? You know, all that good stuff. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if there was like a, a real hard moment that I um, kind of realized. I mean, my, uh, one of my grandfathers is an artist. And so kind of since early on, I've always been around him, kind of going through different mediums and processes from paintings to pastels to hand, you know, wood carvings and stuff like that. So, I mean, I was kind of exposed to it a lot. Um, and then I think it was really... You know, in high school, I, I was really kind of interested in art and drawing and painting. And then I think it was around that time that I discovered graffiti. And that's when it was really like, um, you know, it kind of opened up for me and I got really excited about all that that was happening. I felt much more, um, I could relate to it a lot better, I think, than, um, you know, some of the more traditional kind of art and stuff that I may have been exposed to. What was it? What it? What was it that kind of drew you to graffiti when you saw it? I mean, it was just in places you didn't expect, and it was in areas that you didn't, you know, I didn't understand like how people got there and did it, you know. Um, and then once you started really kind of pulling the door open on it, just learning about like the different personalities and kind of the culture around it and how it's a network of people, and it was really kind of awesome and felt cool to kind of be a part of it and recognize some of those things that I think most people don't when they see it, you know, uh, it was kind of like unlocking a, a secret. And I remember there's a spot in Detroit. It's a, it's a really nice bike path now, uh, pedestrian kind of area. But when I was growing up, it was an old abandoned train tracks that all the writers went down there and did like their kind of pieces. And it was hard to get to you had to climb a fence and scale down the wall. And like, once you were in there, it was just like a museum, you know, like an overgrown museum with just walls and there were guys down there painting on the weekends or whenever. And um, to me, it was just like totally fascinating to kind of see this whole other world that existed kind of in the shadows, you know, uh, but was so like bright and colorful and creative and artistic. And uh, yeah, it set me down that path for sure. I was hooked. And what about you, Jesse? You know, I'm thinking about it as Dan's kind of telling his stories and, you know, I've been familiar with his grandfather's work and, you know, uh, we met while he was painting graffiti. So, you know, I, I feel really connected to that. But I mean, I think my like awakening to art as art and what is art came really late in life. You know, I grew up in on a dirt road and a real rural community and there wasn't really a lot of art or, you know, an even an urban environment 
<clears throat> and so I really wasn't that exposed to it. Um, when I was 20 or 21, I worked in the film industry. Um, I worked in, um, and I made a snowboard film when I was 18 years old. And so I was always around um, like film and cameras. And, you know, I worked in television, cable access as, as a high school student. So, you know, we were expressing ourselves creatively, but art, no, it was never art, you know, it was just like more of a way to kind of maybe rebel or to just be, you know, temper boredom. It wasn't until I moved to New York when I was 21 or so, um, uh, around, around 99 or 2000. And, um, you know, I remember seeing like UFO and goal and all these graffiti writers and it had so much kind of like action to it. Um, and I, I think about this because we do work with UFO uh, and publish editions with him now is um, looking. And I think about this every time I see one of his pieces is like gazing out like from the ninth story building that I was in and seeing, you know, that he had hit the rooftop of another building. And that's when like the kind of moment happened where I kind of said, oh, you know, and then, you you know, you start watching Style Wars and, you know, it's a really famous graffiti film. And, you know, the funny thing that I could never shake was uh, you know, this kind of official on the subways was like, it's not art, it's applying a medium to a surface. <laughs> I'm like, well, isn't that what art is? And so, you know, I think about that a lot, you know, and, and so when Dan and I had our first shop, 323 East, you know, we started kind of, you know, buying some like graffiti markers and stuff. And then a kid would like buy a pink marker and like just smash his name all the way down the street. And I was like, wow, that's like, what will that what will that applying that medium that surface do for that person? And, you know, then we started buying spray cans and then we started doing murals. And now, you know, it's so, so I think it was like, it was really late to it actually. Uh, Dan, just to go back for a second, um, you mentioned your grandfather, was he like a full-time artist? Like that was what he did as a career? No, I mean, he did a lot of stuff. He was doing, um, like some electrical type work and he had a shop for a number of years, but he was always kind of making art, you know, after work his whole life, he was kind of like working with his hands and stuff. So I think, uh, it was kind of his creative outlet. And then as he got into retirement age, I mean, he just went full in and kind of started a really like a second full-time career when he did that and started doing juried art shows and art fairs and all that kind of stuff. So that was pretty cool to watch. Mm -hmm. uh, one thing that you guys both mentioned that, that I thought was interesting about uh, your love of graffiti is that just uh, you, you both kind of touched on this idea of it being of the way it interacts with a city. Like you know, you see it on a building, you're going to like an overgrown area where everyone is is tagging and doing their thing, and like that to me is this really interesting idea of like how the art interacts with the place you live, as opposed to you know while it's great to go into a gallery, it seems like there's something really compelling about finding it out in the wild. And that seems like kind of like a, a deep part maybe of one time run or maybe not. I don't know. I would love to hear more about your thoughts about that. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, you know, my, my parents had taken us to museums and stuff like that as a kid, but I think kind of from where I grew up and, you know, the world I came from, like going to a gallery and stuff like that just didn't, was a little too highbrow maybe for me. And I think that's really, you know, seeing art out in the streets and the place you live and kind of grow up and exist, like it's a whole different um, experience, you know? And I think Detroit for graffiti, I mean, there was already a fascination with kind of the abandonment and, 
um, you know, basically all this kind of canvas for that type of expression. Um, and I think, you know, if, if you grew up here and you lived around it and you kind of were a creative person, I think there was just like so much to kind of take back. And, um, you know, I think it was just out of, I don't know if it's, uh, you know, people just kind of having to see that every day and seeing that kind of decay and everything. And I think it just lends itself to like kids that wanted to make it look better while also, you know, kind of like building their brand uh, before, you know, people really built brands as an artist really, you know, in this kind of world. So I think it was kind of that perfect combination of factors here. And I think kind of everywhere too. Um, but here it was just, you know, there's so, there was so much abandonment for so long that I think that was just, you know, blank slate for artists. Yeah, I, I agree. I think <laughs> Sam, it's really interesting for you to preface that question and think about like, you know, Dan's first really like kind of like really engagement was like kind of going into these um, untouched areas where graffiti was and being experienced at me gazing out that window and seeing graffiti like, okay, so like fast forward, like to where we're Dan and I are working together in a creative environment. Um, we had worked on this movie together. Um, I don't know, it was early 2000s, um, mid 2000s. And, uh, you know, our love of art seems to be quite parallel. You pulled together is like, um, our love for art wasn't, you know, the contemporaries or the historical or, you know, whether we, uh, you know, hobnobbed at art galleries or with the elite. Um, I think it was always about like we're we come from working class families. And, uh, you know, when art was when we found art, it was by accident. And when we were exposed to it, it was by chance. And maybe that's uh, what we do. I mean, when you think about all of the publishing that we've done and all of the prints that we've done, you know, the average price is like a hundred bucks. Like, you know, it's, it's, and so like anybody can discover art or participate, you know? And so I think that's really interesting to kind of pull those parallels. And so I, I really appreciate it. actually, you know, it makes me a little bit um, choked up to think about like how our experience of finding it through discovery, um, you know, in the street uh, would be, would formulate our, our perspective on what we do, um, just kind of inertly through our maybe subconscious when we kind of go to work every morning. Right. Yeah. And I think, I think that there, you know, part of the reason I asked that question is because I have this memory. I remember being a kid and I went over to my friend's house, probably like eight or nine years old. And he was like, Hey, check it out. I got this slide projector. I'm really into art now. And we sat there and we just literally looked at like, there was no distinction. It was like Picasso. It was like, there was no like, school it was just it was just slides of paintings and the only takeaway that i had from that is some of this is really cool and all of it is probably very expensive and hard for me to actually see so there's this kind of one of the appeals i think of maybe for both of you with graffiti is that it's like it could be the most famous writer you know in the country and you could just walk down the street and see an original piece like there's a real kind of uh democratic access to graffiti in a way where like if you can spot it you can see it and it doesn't have to be this like roped off rare thing even if you know these artists are commanding like hundreds of thousands of dollars for original work in a gallery at this point like there's still also that other side of it where they're out in the world and anyone who wants to see it can see it yeah it's almost like you own it 
when it's out in the public like that, like it becomes a part of you and you have this, you know, memories and emotions about it, even other people's work. I mean, just seeing it like, or being, you know, taking the photo and um, yeah, there's like a part of you that um, feels like it's yours in a way when it's out in that space and there's no barriers to getting to it or, uh, you know, you don't have to have a master's degree to understand it or, you know, it doesn't need an artist statement. Like it just is what it is and it's there and it's, uh, you know, it's kind of everybody's at that point. Right. And there's also that aspect of it sort of because it's not in like a temperature controlled room behind a frame with like a velvet rope around it. There's like, you know, it's gonna, it's gonna erode over the years. People are going to probably try to like tag over it. People are going to, you know, someone's going to probably paint over some of it and maybe fail. Like there's all of these like real world things that come in that become kind of part of the history of the piece, which I think is interesting. For sure. For sure. Yeah. The decay in it, just, you know, knowing that it's not going to last forever. The only way it's going to last forever is through the photo you took of it. Um, and, and yeah, there's like such an element of discovery to that. Cause I used to love just finding the old pieces, you know, under a tree or something that had grown over it for years. And like, there's just something really cool to kind of the, the, the stages of life. It's like, you know, urban archeology span in a way or something, you know, finding a cave painting. Um, so to jump ahead a little bit, I'd be curious to know how the two of you first met. Uh, I think, so I was working on a, on a, a documentary about a specific graffiti writer uh, with a friend and uh, we were kind of trying to find this guy. It was the turtle. And it was really funny that the police were trying to find him. The documentary filmmakers were trying to find him. And he's like the slowest moving animal, right? Um, and uh, yeah, and one day I think we kind of ran into each other. And, and um, Dan was writing graffiti. And we were looking for graffiti writers to go out with. And I was in the back seat with a camera. And, and we went out and, um, you know, and did some graffiti around town. And that was like the first time that we ever hung out together. And and uh, and then I think from there we went on to like you know become friends and work together in a lot of different ways, um, and you know it's blossomed into this kind of like two decade relationship where we're you know we're really really close and and we're really lucky to have had this partnership. But yeah, I mean Dan maybe fill you in on some of the details, but yeah, we've worked a lot of long and hard hours together just in the lab, you know after work just. I don't know, tinkering with stuff. And, and, you know, that's kind of what born, um, you know, our first gallery, three, two, three East, um, the publishing platform, one time run and, um, you know, our, our, our latest gallery and, and all of those things that kind of come up, it's like, it's not nine to five. It's, you know, it's, it's all day, every day. And, and that's kind of what we did. Yeah. I mean, when I think back on that now, it's like one, one time runs turned into 10. Um, I think, you know, we started the three, two, three East gallery. It was 12 years ago, uh, 12 or 13. And then I think we met, it was probably like 17 years ago almost now. Um, but I do remember going to like this graffiti jam. It was on nine 11, you know, it was 2003, I think. Um, it was pretty fresh. So that's why I remember the date, but, I remember Jesse and uh, the other guy there interviewing and I remember just like realizing that like, oh, wow, somebody's making a documentary on like this art scene here. This is really cool. You know, and I wanted to learn more and um, just like ended up, you know, reconnecting and spending some time and going on to work with the guy um, and Jesse. And uh, 
yeah, just turned into like getting a lot of kind of other experience through that process too, about kind of the behind the scenes on making the film. And I was going to art school at the time too. So there was a lot of kind of crossover. I was studying illustration and design and it kind of overlapped into some like real world kind of client projects too and experience. And then I think after that was over, you know, we kind of did our own thing for a few years and ended up bumping into each other and uh, reconnecting and, that turned into kind of just us freelancing on a couple projects together and needing some space, which turned into our office, which turned into the first gallery and um, kind of a size of a shoebox, basically. But, you know, we just we worked our jobs and we went in there every night, you know, and we got when we got finished with that work. And it was pretty much. I don't know, three or four years of going in there every night after work and just and the weekends and doing shows and building that up. And uh, yeah, I mean, kind of in the process of us have, building out this little boutique and, you know, starting to do like real gallery shows, like learning about the process of making prints. Um, I was, you know, into kind of what Shepard Ferry was doing and seeing like how these art prints were really like catching fire. And then the flippers were flipping them that day for, 10 times what they paid for them. And so I was super excited about that because it was artists I had already kind of looked up to. And here's this thing now that like, oh shit, if I can get one, you know, I just did a 10 X on my 50 bucks, you know, and at the time that was a lot of money in art school, you know? So, um, it was super cool. And I think, you know, we, uh, we kind of took the best and worst of what, people were doing kind of in that space and trying to make just a better experience and work with the artists that we, um, you know, were in our network and stuff. And I think from there, the network just kind of expanded. So uh, to backtrack just a little bit. uh, So Jesse, you were working on the film and that's when you met Dan and um, you mentioned kind of going with him while he was actually doing some writing. Uh, What is that like when you're like, you know, you've got like your camera, you've got all this stuff, like part of the deal with graffiti, it seems to me is that like, you got to be kind of quick and nimble. And it's like a lot of like getting into a weird space kind of to do what you need to do and then getting out. How does that, what does that look like when you're trying to film everything and kind of in like in a professional way? Well, sure. I was a little suspicious when we were driving around and we got into a really, really uh, dark area that not much was going on. So I think they probably probably picked a spot that they could take the, the, the camera crew to that there wasn't a lot of traffic. So it wasn't super high profile. But mm-hmm. um, but, you know, I was I, I've worked in documentary films at that point for nearly 10 years um, and many of them that had gone on to have um, some accolades. And so uh, but I never was behind the camera. I was always on the crew. And so this kind of felt like my first time to do that now this film it's called paint cans and politics dan and i worked on it for years it never came out it never got finished there's never a resolution it's still sitting in a box in storage um and we never really revisited it because it just it was a a partnership with with uh, the director and it just never really got finished but i think dan will tell you it's like you know uh well we had to record we had to linearly record 250 hours worth of footage into the computer and so I would do the first 12 hours of the day and Dan would do the second 12 hours of the day. And we did that for, I think it was three, we figured out the math, it was three and a half weeks if we did it. And what that taught us, I think, and the process of like going out and filming and like we had client projects to pay the bills and we had an office. 
We had perseverance. We knew how to set goals. Like we, when me and Dan recorded all those videotapes verbatim into the computer, because that's how you had to do it. Like, I think that if you look back at it, like that taught us that like teamwork, like we did, we handed the baton off to each other. And so I think like when, when I look at like even yesterday, I still feel like that the baton is being handed back and forth on a daily basis. And when I'm not doing at my best, Dan's picking up for me. When I'm doing really well, you know, Dan's supporting me. So I think like, it's always been this kind of like um, push and pull relationship where we're there to support each other. And so um, that I can say in the last 17 years, whatever it's been, um, the, you know, the best years of my life, um, I've been really lucky to share that with somebody like that. I mean, um, we don't have brothers, you know, and um, I'd be happy to say that, uh, you know, I have never had a, a better brother than, than Dan. And, and we've been able to share so many magical moments, but it was that time of like going out there and like, you know, watching for each other, watching each other's backs, you know, handing the baton off and making these things happen. That I think is like kind of when I go back and I have never really thought about it is like really some of the more special moments that I, I can recall. And, um, you know, you guys have obviously known each other a lot longer than one time run has been around in an official capacity, but I would love to talk about when you decided to and why you decided to create one time run. Like what was going on in your lives? What were those early discussions? Like what was kind of the thought behind it? Well, we had the art gallery, you know, and you know, Dan and I were in marketing. Um, I had a small agency and Dan worked at an agency. And so we were always kind of into like marketing concepts and how do you get people to motivate. And also like, you know, we, we wanted, we were like really interested in seeing if we can get people like line up at the gallery and like maybe take a photo and say like, look at like how busy our gallery is. It's like people are lined up before they open, and literally the place is like 400 square feet. It fits like 35 people. Um, so what we started doing is uh, we uh, started, we, um, we worked with Glenn Barr and Glenn Barr introduced us to uh, this guy who made his digital prints for him. Um, and we, uh, made a print with Glenn Barr's show. We were like so honored. We were big Glenn Barr fans and Glenn never really taught us anything. He just showed us how to do it. And so then every other show we would do, we would give away 15 mini art prints prior to the show and people would line up and we'd take a picture and we'd say like, look at how busy this show is. I mean, we had a crowd and the gallery was great and it, and it did well. I mean, at, from a business standpoint, I mean, I don't ever think it made money, but from a cultural standpoint, I think it was like a huge, huge success. But, um, but yeah, we started like, um, you know, giving away these art prints at little shows and we did the art print with Glenn Barr and we put up the art print with Glenn that we did with Glenn on our website, on our gallery website, that was an e-commerce platform and nobody ever bought anything from that website. So we put up the print and it hits a couple of blogs at that point. And we had an edition of 35 and within two days we sold 18. And after that, you know, it's three page three, four of the blog, nobody buys them. So, you know, we were like, oh, wow, look at that. It's interesting. So then we did like a 50% off sale on our website just to see if we could get people to buy. And we had eight people buy that day when we had no people buy ever before. So we started like kind of like testing, like how do people react to e-commerce in relation to art and just putting up art on a website doesn't mean that people are going to buy it, um, have to motivate them to buy it. So I think that's when we started kind of coming up with the idea of could we build a better platform um, that would fit these kind of um, 
demands that were in the market. So if people were only interested in buying it for uh, one or two days, and so we would set the edition available for one week. And if it didn't sell out, we would lower the edition size. We didn't have any money and we pre-booked orders. So it's like, seemed great. Like if you make, if you sell 15, you make, you make 15 and, and you make, you know, you make, they make, you don't, you don't have a lot of expense. You know, you pre-booked the orders. So mm-hmm. I think that's a dis- dis- disconnected way of, of kind of explaining it, but maybe Dan can, can, can help save me here on this one. Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> I think there was just a lot of, um, you know, it's like taking some of the great experiences we had, like, trying to buy prints from other people um, and kind of the excitement that those things really had when you actually like crack through and then also take like some of the things that really like weren't good experiences. Um, you know, when you're trying to buy something, the whole site crashes and like, or you get through and then a couple of days later, they're like, Oh, we got to refund you because we oversold this thing. Or there's like so much of that kind of stuff that was happening. That was just like, man, can't you just like put me in line and I see where I'm at. And if I get it, I know I got it. And if I don't, I don't, the website's not going to break. And like, I think that was like a a huge kind of driver of it. And, um, you know, I think we ended up, uh, doing that and kind of like engineer really like, how do you take a, a guy like Shepard Ferry who can sell out that print in five seconds, you know what I mean? And break the internet. Um, and how do you kind of create some of those same supply, demand, excitement kind of feelings with somebody who's just starting to uh, emerge, you know, in the scene or um, maybe somebody that doesn't have that kind of same um, clout as a guy like that and really kind of just engineer it in a way that like there's it's time sensitive and the price you know you feel is a great deal because we wanted to make stuff that like we could afford you know and our friends could afford and um not stuff that was so out of the realm of possibility that you wouldn't even you know think you'd ever be able to attain it at all but like yeah stuff that kind of anybody could afford and if you know you had the opportunity to get it at that moment and if you didn't you're going to kick yourself after because it's going to be more expensive and you're not going to be able like, to get right. it again even if it didn't sell out in five seconds even if it um you know even if the artist thought it might have done bad and we only sold a few like only a few got made so some of those additions like the early additions there's only a couple of them in existence you know so it actually took some of those and made them even more special because there wasn't a lot of interest then, you know? So I think we always kind of had that in mind and trying to, you know, just create a product that um, was super special. And if you got it, you felt like you really got something special. And in the long run, um, you know, kind of became even more special as time goes on. So. Right. And I think Sam, like Dan and I like are collectors, like, you know, you know, Dan has every lanyard for every event we've ever done. Um, you know, I collect vinyl records and I, they're all alphabetical or organized by city. You know, it's like we are the collector. And so when we had a chance to, well, we did two things. One is we were working in e-commerce and technology, but peripherally, I mean, we had a website for our, for our small gallery, you know, that nobody shopped on. Mm-hmm. Um, but what we said to ourselves was like, you know, we had a we had a decent retail space on a, on a on a on a street that didn't have a lot of foot traffic, and we said, how do we like grow beyond our 
brick and mortar. Brick and mortar was like a big term back then. Brick and mortar, brick and mortar. And how do we grow? How do we create the online experience or the, the gallery experience online and replicate that? Where it was like maybe the people lined up for the free art print was not a real line, but you know, it was it was real energy. It was true. It was honest energy that the, the desire was there to get in early, to see it, to get something in exchange for their time. Um, so I think there was a lot of these parallels. Dan and I were working in um, making websites for our clients and stuff like that. So we understand how servers works. We under, understood how like websites were built. And that's when Dan and I, it was a really defining moment for us is that um, we were trying to, Audrey Kawasaki is uh, artist that we had looked up to at the time, and Dan had collected a couple of her prints, had one go on sale. It was um, a Saturday afternoon, I remember it was two o'clock, and we were in the gallery, in the back of the gallery in our office, and we said, dude, we're both gonna get this. Like, we're both going for it. It's an edition of 200 at 200 bucks. And we both hit refresh at 2 p.m., he got one, I didn't. We went out back, smoked a cigarette, when <laughs> we used to smoke, <laughs> and we said, can you believe that? Like. The login was terrible. The sign-up was clunky. Like, I had no idea. I didn't get it. I had, he, he didn't have any idea how he got it. Like, and we were just like, okay, well, we are building tech, technology. I mean, we're not technologists in, in Silicon Valley. You know, we're just like a couple kids in the back of an art gallery in Detroit. You know, so um, we were like, well, I think that we could build that system better. And by the way, we got this guy who Glenn introduced us to. He makes the art prints. <laughs> We're like, so if we can make the technology, that guy down the street that he showed us how to do it, he could make them. And yeah. there's the genesis of how we got started. Yeah. Right. And then from there, it was like, oh, you know, we work with Glenn. And Glenn has the respect of, you know, a lot of artists in, the, in that kind of world. And, um, you know, he was able to really kind of introduce us to other artists that had those demands. And it was right at kind of the birth of social media um you know in terms of instagram and facebook and actually being able to like reach people too so when right at that time we're really kind of making a big splash and starting to work with you know some bigger artists like we were cutting through to everybody so it was uh, a good time for us to kind of build our uh you know fan base as well as kind of uh get new artists to work with and reach their fans too so it's a different game today so I think, you know, one thing that struck me that I think is really interesting about One Time Run is uh, you guys are both collectors. You both exist in the art world. Like if you are an art collector, that is like typically an extremely uh, expensive hobby. Like you've all, and it's also like hard to get things like, like you're saying. Uh, one thing, and I think that's part of the um, sort of inherent appeal of it in a way, at least in an underlying way, where it's like, you know, some of this stuff, you really want to have it in your home, but maybe it's like part of the reason you want to have it in your home is that you can't ever really realistically have it in your home. You know, like the option isn't there. And something that you've done with one time run is it's like really kind of democratized the process. Like, you know, if someone has a couple hundred bucks, they're probably going to, or less, they're probably going to be able to get a print that they want. So it's making art very accessible, um, which I think is a really like honorable thing to do. But I also imagine that it's hard to kind of, uh, I guess like make that sort of like exist in the right way within the art world, if that makes sense. Like when you make something accessible, does some of the appeal go away in people's minds? Like there's a little bit of a psychological game that you kind of have to play or a gamble that you had to make when you started one time. Crazy. I mean, we yeah. didn't have any money. 
And we did, we just had this guy who could make prints down the street. And so we had some time. I mean, Dan and I sat there, like it, he would, he would show up, like I would do my day job there and he would show up at like seven o'clock after dinner. And it would be like one o'clock. We'd be like high-fiving each other and leaving. We're like, what do we do that day? Like we made a logo, you know, or we did a client project or like we emailed some artists and they got back to us. Like, you know, like that was it. And like, I think when you look at like what to your question about, about value is when things are very expensive, they're protected. Mona Lisa, right? It's protected. Like, that's cool. Like, they're, these cultural things that are really important are protected because of price. And when things are cheap, they get less, you know, they get more discarded, right? But what we do in our, in, you know, our business model is, and essentially, is turning fans into collectors. So, and when Dan said, like, yeah, when, when people would post it on their Facebook in, you know, 2000, uh, in, in 2014, everybody would see it and they'd be like sold out and there'd be all these comments and be really engaging. And actually today, that engagement actually exists on Instagram because I think their algorithm really works for small businesses and entrepreneurs and makers. And I think they got the mix right finally because your most important people see everything and, and there's a lot of activity. But that's what we were doing. It's like, if, if you're... Like yesterday's release with Jet, Jet Martinez, you know, we worked with him a couple of times. It was edition of 65. It sold out in three minutes. And he emailed us and he goes, I spent more time sending sorry messages to people than I did signing the art prints. And so what does that mean? That means that his fan is engaged and his fan can become a collector. And those people for a hundred bucks or whatever it is, have a piece of his essence, a piece of his creativity, uh, a definitely a dialogue and a story, they now own a piece of that. Like if you were to able to buy a Warhol for or whatever they were, 25 bucks in 1982 or whatever, right? Like, oh, I, you know, I remember my grandpa got one, you know? The, the essence is still the same, you know? Um, and many of the prints that we have published have gone on to be worth, you know, multiples of their value. But, um, you know, with anything that's rare uh, or coveted or desirable, you know, the price can go up over time. So, um, so I think it was never our intention to like, how do we hit the highest market? Um, and that's kind of been our biggest benefit. And also sometimes um, people's rejection of our brand. And they're saying like, oh, well, it's like, it's for the masses, or it's too many people, or like you said, democratizing art, like we do none of those things. Like, there's an also a very turn of phrase that I love. Today's toy is tomorrow's king. And that means that the kid that shows up in the yard who doesn't have a hand style, who doesn't have any skills, who hasn't figured out his identity, can one day be the talk of the town. And that's the same thing with each of these artists. And artists will go through our system and we, you know, sometimes we work with them, we're like, wow, they kind of, their art looks like somebody else's. Well, there's a market for that art, right? And then eventually they find their own identity through the act of participation. That identify, that, then at some point they go, wow, I've created such a unique identity that they move off of our platform to being self-published because they've identified that that's a market for them or a business. And they build businesses around their additions at that point, whether they work with their spouse or their friend or their cousin or their manager, or what have you. So, you know, like there's this kind of like, system that I think that, you know, um, when you have like Shepard Ferry, for instance, like let's say he's published 300 or 500 or a thousand different editions and they're all editions of 400 or 500. Like, are there hundreds of thousands of people that own Shepard Ferry's art? Probably. You know what I mean? So like you got a guy that has 10 people that own his art and somebody that has 10,000 people. So 
what we try to do through consistency and frequency of releases with the the collaborators we work with is is you know at the end of the year you could have 200 collectors then you could have 300 collectors then you could have 500 collectors then you could have a thousand collectors and maybe when they get up to 5000 collectors through our platform or a thousand collectors then they maybe take it as an independent business you know so mm-hmm. i think this is the trajectory of like how do you turn fans into collectors and how do you create demand within your art and I think that is really an interesting mechanic. We're not here, no, no, no offense, to democratize art. We're here to like connect, do the connect, hard parts of connecting. There's 25 of us that work every day to make sure that the prints get made. They get shipped. Customer service issues are remediated. Damage to packaging. We got package engineers. You know, we've got production people. Like, it's like a whole system. So like, yeah, you can self-publish. That's fine. And that's, you know, and people choose to do that. But with our system, you know, we have marketing and creative and we have product development. It's like, it's pretty complicated um, mm-hmm. system to actually come up and make the art prints. Do you uh, remember the kind of like the specific moment where you were like, one time run is a successful thing. This is, this has gone from something that we're kind of just doing because we think it's a good idea to being like, Oh, you know what? This is really, really working. I mean, I know my moment, but I'm going to, I'm going to wait for Dan's cause I don't really know his. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. There's been a lot, you know, it seems like it's a constant kind of thing. I don't remember necessarily the first moment that we made it. I mean, man, it's happened like so many times that, you know, you <laughs> kind of find yourself like, you know, I, I looked up to this guy when I was a kid now I'm helping him on a mural or, um, man, <clears throat> I remember, I mean, really when Ron English came to 323 East and he did uh, this billboard and he did a bunch of wheat paste on the building and stuff. I mean, for me, like I had written a, um, you had to do a thesis even in art school. And I, I remember I wrote mine on him and Shepard Ferry, you know? And so it's like, I was definitely a huge fan. I'd done a lot of research. I mean, I was like way into the billboard liberation front stuff he did and and his artwork and then here he shows up at you know our place and he takes over the billboard illegally and gets arrested by the cops and it's like how you know it's crazy going from a couple years ago to now this guy's actually here on our place doing this and um that for me was kind of the first moment that was like wow we you know that was really special thing there yeah, and it just kind of happened again over and over and over again. Uh, I mean, didn't Sam, didn't you ask us to like both come up with our top 10 moments and we were just like, mm-hmm. we didn't respond to your email for a whole week because <laughs> it's just a question that is really hard to answer. And I know that Dan answered it with 10 moments, which I thought was really great. And we're going to share those in the new zine that we're coming out with together that we're working on together. Um, but uh you know, mine was more philosophical about who we've helped and what we've done and, and how many people's lives we've touched. I mean, just the volume of stuff that we've done, when I think back on it, like, I, I just, I'm surprised that, you know, that we were able to do that much and um, and and do that much and, and, and be a support system um, to make people's ideas come to reality. But we released our first art print with Matt Eaton on November 1st, of 2010. Um, and we had every week on Monday, we released a new art print. The second one was Audrey Pongrance, an artist we worked with in our gallery for a really long time. And then it was Glenbar. Okay, so this brings us up about to December. 
I don't ask me what was the December releases. Cause I don't know four, five, and six. But uh, Dan and I had worked at Three T Three East. We had built this uh, little gallery up. Uh, the agency that I had ran kind of paid all the bills. It paid the salaries of the employees. I, I, I mean, we just didn't even have any idea how to make money. Or uh, it was really tough. It was a really struggle for us. But I remember uh, right before Christmas that I, I wrote two five hundred dollar checks, and I handed one to Dan and. We embraced in a hug, and we said we finally, after all these years, finally got our first dollar out of this. And um, then maybe it was just we needed money for Christmas presents because at that point you just like really you're 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 just day to day. Um, I don't know you know if we even could afford it or had it, but I remember that we gave ourselves a five hundred dollar check, and that was like holy shit, we finally figured out a way to do this. Um, that and then fast forward to. March of 2011 that we did a print release with um, Luke Chu. Again, like Luke Chu and Dave Kinsey and some of these artists, like we only admired them. And they eat, and, and, and Askew, who was actually a part of the 10-year collection, like this guy's in New Zealand. Like I don't even know where New Zealand is, you know? And I, and, and I, and he, he says yes. And, and Dave Kinsey says yes. And, and Luke Chu says yes. And I'm like, oh, holy shit. And then Luke's print sells out. I remember it was like eight minutes, you know, and we oversold it and, a, you know, it was really cool. And that was the moment I was like, you know what? Cause I had agency clients. I started telling them it was over. I was like, I'm done. I'm done. I'm done with clients. I thought like, oh, it's going to be great. I didn't realize customers were a little bit more challenging, but you know, you have to have some sort of, you know, balance there. And that was a really special moment that we kind of embraced. And I think, you know, over the 10 years, um, you know, cracking some bottles of champagne and celebrating some of these huge milestones, um, like when we purchased the building at 1410 Crash It, we had no money. Like literally the guy was like, I'll sell you this three-story building with six, uh, six units in it. For he, he said he would sell it to us. We had to give him a $10,000 deposit. And we didn't have it. And I remember Dan showed up on Saturday and he's got a cell phone out and he's taking pictures of some of the prints that we had from the first year on the wall. We had like one hanging. It was like maybe number one, we got framed. And we just like put up those pictures on our website and we put like a thousand bucks on it. Like, I don't know. Like if somebody wants it, they can have our copy. And by the end of the weekend, we had the $10,000. And we gave this $10,000 deposit on this building. And then we had 60 days to come up with another $30,000. And I mean, it just worked. It worked. And we, 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 me and Dan walked in there. We literally gave him a $30,000 check. They had to give us $5,000 back, whatever the real estate deal was. And we had $100 in the bank. And we walked out of there with the keys to the building full of tenants. <laughs> and we go, we own this building. Like we have these keys, like, but we can't even go in there because it's <laughs> full of tenants. And then like, you know, and then payroll was due and we had a couple employees, you know, and their check, $5,000 check cashed, it cleared the bank and we were able to couple pay payroll. And, you know, so basically in, gallery in there. So in, in like kind of one fell swoop, you owned a building and realized you were able to pay your employees and it was all like happening all off of selling art prints that you had manufactured and worked with artists to make. So it was like this, it seems like it, it's kind of cool because I feel like when most people like if I were to ask that question to a lot of people that have started businesses, they'd be like, I don't know. Like it's kind of like one day, all of a sudden we had employees and it's never really, but it seems like you guys had these really definitive, like you got to build it all of a sudden. 
And, you know, that's, you know, there's a lot of circumstances that made that possible, but that's a pretty rare thing to have happen. Um, is that the building that you, I know that you, you took over the whole building in, in was it 2012? Is that the same? Is that, is that the, yeah, so I think like we we got in there and and they had a they had a, a, a the the first floor tenant was moving out as we were as we were kind of moving in. That was part of the mm-hmm. deal. They weren't paying rent. Um, there was one unit that was being um, was being short term rentaled on the on the third floor. So we acquired that within a week, um, and then we had I think three tenants for a while, and um, and we kind of moved in there and just like you know in their bad carpeting, just like threw our desks in there and and moved and. Um, it probably took us about a nine months, maybe a year. And, um, and 2013, we opened interstate gallery, um, in that building with Glenn Barr as our first show. Cause like, we were just like, get all of this is because what Glenn Barr showed us. He didn't. And I tell people, he never taught us anything. He just showed us like, he just like, it's so weird. He like, he, he's not like even a mentor in a, a lot of ways. He's just like, Hey, you want to make an art print? Yeah. You want to do an art show? Yeah. And he just shows up with the art show and it's like, Oh, now I know how to do an art show because we did one, you know? And right. so, so we do, we opened the gallery in 2013, uh, it's the spring or something. And, um, yeah, I mean, I think there's so, so many milestones, um, that you look back on, on a, after 10 years, but I think the real genesis of it is that the foundation is that, um, Dan and I have been friends for a long time, you know, and I think um, when we enco- encountered like the worst of our relationship, um, we hunkered down um, and we spent a lot of time working to make our relationship great. And now going through all these transitions and everything and now like becoming adults and having families and all that other stuff, like we feel like com- I feel completely centered for the future. Because we've gone through all the stuff in the past that was like either traumatic or, you know, difficult or, you know, all the ups and downs that kind of come to like, I mean, 10 years, what do they say? Most businesses fail within the first five, even more fail within the first 10. Like this is not a failing business. This business will not fail. Like the only time it's going to, we're going to stop publishing is when we decide that, you know what, maybe we want to do something else with our lives. But like uh, failing just for the, I mean, we should have failed. <laughs> so we didn't, you know. Right. But so I think, you know, one thing that is, was interesting about this building, I think, is that you really like, it was a gallery and it was an office space, of course, but it was also, I, I read an interview with you guys from a while ago where you, it sounds like the whole building itself was like devoted to making and producing art, you know, whether it was like one time run or like the gallery or anything like that, like you were essentially creating a space where art could be made it was like a building and i i just think that like saying that multiple times because it's such a like a wild thing to say that there was an entire building devoted to art in you know the 21st century which is like not not super common in the last like two decades yeah i mean we had you know from it was three stories and the basement was a full-on kind of screen printing um, you know, spray paint booth, kind of dirty word, wood shop, you know, to make stuff. Uh, we had built that out and then we had turned one of the, the units upstairs into an artist residency. Um, and our offices were on the second floor and the gallery was on the first floor. So it was, it was really cool. And Jesse lived up there on the third floor as well, too. So, I mean, it was definitely always something happening people coming by people dropping in from out of town like people staying for months and making a an exhibition to show in the gallery which would be you know sold on the website and 
Um, it was like always something going on. And most of the time it was a lot more than just something, you know, there was like a lot of plates spinning in that place. I was, the energy was amazing. Um, the neighborhood was great. And that kind of led us into starting a uh, mural festival murals in the market there because that was our neighborhood. And that's where, um, you know, kind of going back to where I discovered graffiti, that's where it was. That's where the train tracks, um, were was an Easter market. So like personally, I was, you know, I had like a personal connection to that place from my experiences there. And it was kind of a hub for graffiti, you know? And so, felt really cool kind of going into that next phase of, uh, you know, doing public art there, legit. Um, you know, it's pretty wild how it all kept coming full circle, you know, in so many different ways. And that's, you know, I think something that we've touched on quite a bit is this, uh, like kind of this idea of community, but we haven't directly talked about it. So I wanted to bring that up too, which is that like in having that space, you were really, in addition to like, you know, online selling prints and everything, you were part of the community in a very concrete way. Um, and I'd, I'd be curious to know about how you guys feel about like one time runs connection to the art scene in Detroit and just like Detroit in general, just like, you know, obviously doing that means that you're really like you were in it like every single day, you know, you lived it, you were, you were a part of it. It wasn't just producing prints to sell online with artists. You were really like in the mix on the ground. Yeah, and I think, you know, and kind of when I was maybe a little more part of like the graffiti community uh, earlier on and kind of leading up to us really kind of going in and starting one time run, like it was a community, but at the same time, it was definitely like, uh, you know, more like a dysfunctional family than a community, I think, because you have you know, this whole graffiti code and beefs and the hierarchy and crews and stuff like that. So it was like, there was a lot of like friendship and collaboration and stuff, but then there was also like, you know, uh, lines drawn and the code you kind of had to follow and stuff like that too. So I think as time went on um, and public art kind of expanded from just graffiti and spray paint like it used to not be cool to use a brush on a mural you know i mean that was just like people are not cool with that you know and now kind of anything goes um and it's more of you know public art than necessarily mural art just being about kind of the graffiti community so i feel like and and it does work you know i think now it's definitely more integrated and graffiti artists obviously are kind of, you know, moving and doing fine art and fine artists are doing graffiti and it's kind of the rules um, have changed so much. And I feel like it's much more like welcoming and accepting now. And it is actually a bigger community that supports each other, um, you know, and, and networks and it's, it's a global thing even, you know, and I think that, has trickled down. I think the mural festival has allowed us to kind of bring some of that like global community to Detroit and let some of the Detroit artists kind of, you know, see it and experience it and then, you know, go on to become part of it. Um, I think that's, you know, that's been kind of our big goal is to just, we've, we've been lucky enough to work with artists all over the world and go to some really cool places and do art projects. And it, you see a lot of people in different places and you realize like, there is a really big connection between a lot of these people and, and, um, you know, just trying to elevate 
our artists that are here and try to make them part of that and just you know get some exposure on it um, I think has has worked really well you know I always tell people like um, that we we don't choose each other we choose the movement and you know as as personalities are as are as different as people people's personalities are so widely varied that you have to figure out how to work with everybody um whether you know you see eye to eye or you don't or or what have you so like we chose this life we didn't choose each other now we all have to, we're all in this boat together and we have to figure out how to swim together ride together participate together you know survive together so when i think back to like a sense of community um, that Dan and I always thought was a part of what we did is that we were sitting outside our first gallery, um, 323 East, um, and it's in a small suburb of, of Detroit. And at that time, Dan and I had worked downtown and, you know, clients wouldn't come downtown. It was just, there was, it was nothing happening there. Right. And there was underground parties and you know, graffiti was occurring, but like, you know, just as far as commerce goes, it just really wasn't there in the early 2000s. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we had a five-year lease and like five years is up. We were like, holy shit, we're like missing it. You know, it's like really happening downtown now. But like, you know, Detroit, you're just, you're here, you're not, you know, it's not like, and I know there's some divide between suburbs and city, but I mean, for the most part, you know, people that live in the suburbs say they're from Detroit. So, but one of the, we were sitting out there and we, you know, we, we, we read the laws of our city to see what we could do as far as a, a painting a mural. And we said, look, you know, it's kind of, it's not a, it's not a advertisement. So like, maybe it'll piss off the government, um, the local government, maybe they'll write us a ticket and maybe we can get a, some press out of it. You know, we're always into like looking at ways so that we could like, you know, just, you know, kind of bend the rules. And if they, if they, if they were mad, then we would use it as a political or PR stunt. Right. Right. But also it was not, but if, but if it went off without a hitch, we pulled up, pulled them. The, I mean, the first art shows that we did were called barbecued artists. And we would have a we would have a barbecue, and we have another art show. So, you know, we'd pull out the barbecue, and I mean, even the mural festival. There's many photos of us. I mean, we would by the by the mid mural fest mid 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 years of the mural festival, we were renting barbecues that had to be towed in on a trailer. You know, so it seems like these barbecues is always kind of center to what we do. Barbecued artist. And then we did our first mural in the building. We pulled out the barbecue and, and had people, people sat out there and watched it happen. Maybe there's three, four or five people. Um, I remember, you know, interesting enough, Jack Kevorkian walking by when we were painting one of the murals because he lived in the neighborhood, um, which we all thought he was kind of a hero um, yeah. because of what he was doing. And so it was really cool. Yeah. You know, it's like Dr. Jack walks by and it's like the barbecue is going and people are eating burgers and you know, it's really cool. And so it's always been about community. It's always been about place. And you go back and look at any of the photos on, 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 um, on the Interstate Gallery's what, um, in, um, Facebook page. Is, I mean, there were so many people that come to those shows. And we drive diversity because we knew that most of the time art events having to be Caucasian or like pretty much all the same demographic. That was not our goal. Like our goal was to make it like, a, you know, we would everybody who walked in, we would greet them. How are you doing? Welcome. Thanks for coming. Like, and so, you know, we built this kind of really dynamic, very diverse community. Um, and when Interstate closed about two years ago, I still see, well, I haven't seen anybody since March, but, you know, before that we see people and they would go, uh, man, we really miss that place. We really miss the people that we saw there. And like, you know, it's like the peripheral people. You don't know them. Maybe you don't know their phone number. Maybe you don't remember their name. Um, but you know them. They're a right, part of the around. architecture. 
They're a fixture mm-hmm. of it, you know? Um, and so I think when you think about like bringing together artists, creatives, and people that are interested in creativity and interested in, and that really community was really built. Okay, so then, boom, we put a fire under that and we start this mural festival in Eastern Market. And now we're having events with three, four, five, ten thousand 10,000 people. And that community keeps growing. I mean, one of the guys that works in our shipping department, his name is Torrance. I met him at the mural festival. He poked, he touched me on the, uh, on the shoulder inside of FedEx, uh, what was it, like a year ago. And he was like, you're the guy from the mural festival. And I said, oh yeah, I remember that conversation we had. He's like, yeah, I'd really like to, you know, come and hang out with you guys. I said, yeah, come, come have lunch with me. And boom, now he works for us full time. It's like, you know, and so those threads, I think not only happen within us, but with all those 10,000 or 20,000 or 100,000 people that we've been engaged in. And then quite on the other side, we do that within the artist network that we have. So they create a bond because they're all part of our alumni. And then the collectors have a bond because they're all part of an alumni. So there's all these kind of circles going around of these communities that, you know, I mean, when Dan and I look each other in the eye through the video chat, which we do, you know, daily, I mean, we, we did that. You know, right. that was, that was, that, and, was, that was what drove us. Right. And I think, you know, that was something else. I have a couple more questions here, but one thing I wanted to ask is, you know, obviously the company has drawn, grown quite a bit from just, you know, the two of you guys and, you know, assorted freelancers or whatever, like it's a real deal company now. Do you remember, you know, it kind of plays off the idea of community. Do you remember when you both realized that, Hey, maybe we need to have like, a lot more people working for us. Like we need this to be more than just the two of us and maybe a few other people scattered around. This is now like a full operation where this is, we're running this company. We're not just like doing a fun gallery thing. Yeah. And I think, and I don't think there was ever really a moment where like, Oh man, we need to like hire a bunch of people. It was always just kind of like a slow building. Um, Same thing with the website. Like, I feel like it's just like every day we're kind of grinding it out and then we kind of hit a capacity and we're like, we really need to like get somebody in here to help with this. And so we get somebody in and most of the time it was, yeah, like some connection we made or one of our friends or um, somebody kind of close and, um, you know, then a year would go by and we need some more people and you get a couple more and those people would kind of transition into another role that we built, you know, because things are getting bigger and, um, I think a, a lot of it kind of happened naturally and a lot of people kind of came in just, um, you know, helping out and it turned into, you know, real positions and uh, people have kind of moved up through them as they've been created and stuff too, which is really, um, you know, kind of cool. And I think it's the same thing with our website and the development of it. It's just been like a, how to, every day, how do we make it better? What piece do we add, you know, now to take it to the next level? like that's it's been pretty organic there's ever been like a huge hiring kind of spree or anything like that that we realized oh man we gotta really really bulk this thing up Mm. um so i guess uh kind of my my last real question is i'd be curious to know about like you know we've talked a lot about the early days and we talked a lot about how you kind of got to where you are now but now that this is an established thing, um, what is the day-to-day like for one-time run at this point? For you guys and for the company as a whole, like what do you, you know, how, you know, from those early days where you were in there kind of just like figuring it all out, you've essentially figured it out now, right? And, or more or less. 
I mean, you know, Dan's saying that, you know, we're tinkering on it all, all the time and stuff. And sometimes you think like, well, when do, you, when do you stop doing that? You know, and, and you just kind of like roll with the punches and just kind of go with the motion. But, um, you know, the day to day right now is that, you know, we're working from home, you know, and, uh, you know, it's, it's teaches us a lot of discipline. It's been really tough. You know, um, we have, uh, about six or eight people that are in the building every day. And I, I head down there, um, you know, a couple of times a week. Um, but you know, we, uh, have uh, brought on some real senior people as of late. Um, and we've been really lucky that we have, um, some other companies within our community now, because we're not a tech-based community, um, that have built, um, some knowledge base within Detroit. So we, it's weird because we, we've hired our first person remotely now that, I mean, that's not in Detroit. And so we think that, you know, and, and like our CFO said yesterday, he's like, I'm thinking about moving back to my hometown in New York. And we're like, yeah, why not? Right. So, um, so I think that we kind of move to this kind of like, there'll be some sort of quasi, um, work from home environment maybe in the future, but mm -hmm. indefinitely, but we've hired some senior people in some good positions, um, art director, operations managers, um, and you know, our philosophies, uh, for the last, um, year has been, how do we get the product, not in a pre-order state, but we have it on hand. How do we get it to the customers quicker? How do we improve satisfaction? And then, um, you know, my wife's cousin, um, he came on as a consultant about a year ago and he taught us about this trust, loyalty, and advocacy ladder and how to bring people up the ladder and not down it. And so when you, you know, maybe ship a product late, you go down the trust ladder. You ship it early, you go up the trust ladder. So we've been really focusing on two components, like how do we bring both the artists that we work with up the trust and advocacy to loyalty or loyalty to advocacy ladder. And how do we do that with the customers? And so that's kind of been our main philosophies, you know, getting stuff in hand and getting it, getting it, um, getting it available, having it in shop before we put it on sale to increase shipping times. That's been main, main priority. Working on long, like we have like around last year, we worked with about 180 different artists, right? So we're looking at like, how do we maybe tighten that up to be maybe, you know, 75 artists that we are like fully focused on. And so we've been putting plans together for all of those artists. Um, so we can create this kind of philosophy of consistency, um, uh, frequency and value. And I always tell them value doesn't mean it's cheap. It just means that it's a perceived value, whether it's, mm -hmm. I can get one and it's, I can afford it. So those are really the philosophies that kind of like we're running the company on right now is always constantly moving people up the trust ladder. When I had no idea, I'm like, oh yeah, well, they didn't get their order on time. Um, but you know, it's a collectible. So they'll, they'll wait. And then it's like, well, no, because then they get their feelings hurt. Right. And so then you, and you, you're selling, um, art to, tens of thousands of people, it's hard to really think about the individual. And so we've right. really focused on not the specific individual, but the individual hypothesis of the individual experience. Right. Those are kind of the philosophies that we've been working through. Um, and we have a great team and we're executing at a really, really high rate right now. I mean, we're very bullish on the future. We think the collectibles market is exploding right now. And we think that artists are the true keepers of the human spirit through expression. I mean, that, that is a great place to end, but I did have one thing that I, that I forgot that I wanted to ask you guys about, which is, um, uh, so you had that building and if I'm, if I read right or I researched correctly, you left it in 2017, mm -hmm. um, is, was there any reason for that beyond just, you know, whatever, was there anything kind of like 
like what what prompted that change i guess or, or and where are you basing everything i mean when i say basing things now i mean like pre-covid like what 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 was where are you basing all of your operations and everything I mean, to be honest, like we, we, we really fell, fell on hard times, you know, um, after the 2016 election, like our sales dropped quite significantly. Um, we had operational issues. We had staffing issues. Um, I think really we just like got overwhelmed with it. You know, I think we were like <laughs> riding the wave and we just, we got, we got towed under. Yeah. I mean, I think we we're just trying to do, we don't like saying no to a cool project. We were, you know, kind of our mentality is like, we want to just put out as much of the best kind of stuff as we can. And if there's an opportunity on a project, like we want to take it and, and do it. And I think we were, you know, we had an artist residency, we had a gallery, we were doing art fairs, we were doing mural festivals, we were doing pop-ups in other cities. Um, I mean, we were doing so much and it was awesome and getting the brand out there and doing cool events and um, really kind of building our brand through that. But at the same time, you know, we weren't, uh, we lost some focus on like the core business side of things and like kind of what Jesse was just saying about making sure people get their stuff quicker, just, you know, given, given each product like the attention that it deserves, um, you know, and really kind of dialing that in because, a lot of times we're like, yeah, if we're making cool stuff, we're happy. But at the same time, you know, as we grow and get more employees and, you know, uh, people get raises and things like that, like there has to be, a, um, you know, some real kind of business um, that we have to consider and, you know, and do and like really kind of focus on. So like when we first started, I mean, you don't even think about filing your taxes or right. having current <laughs> policies or anything like that. And I think, you know, the more we're doing, um, you know, the bigger our network needed to be and kind of our staff needed to be. And it was just a lot. And I think, you know, moving from there, uh, it was a great space and it had everything we needed, but it wasn't really set up for the kind of business we do online and our shipping. And we're shipping out of a little back room and we actually had to rent space in the building next door to keep most of the art because we didn't have room um and if it rained or something you might not be able to ship that day because you had to get it from one building to the next you know so it was a lot of just those little efficiencies that while it was very cool experience um wasn't the most efficient and now i think we're set up and you know uh, our office is bigger and more open and you know pre-covid we could work together um you know more and, and our shipping area is really a warehouse to really kind of store and ship quickly. And um, right. so there was a lot of kind of benefits to the business and moving, but we lost some of those like cool kind of personal experiences and closing the gallery down, which was a bit bittersweet, you know? Right. Yeah. Definitely a trade-off. It's that thing of like, you know, kind of realizing what your company is, is becoming and, and where it's kind of, you know, where the, where the money is coming in and having to sort of accommodate that and then what you lose in the process. So there is that like that feeling of like becoming more professional, but losing some of that sort of like ragtag spirit, which I guess could always be a hard thing, even if it's like. Yeah. <laughs> and I think in having the mural festival too, was kind of a, a, at least a way for us to still kind of have that and do, you know, see all these people again and do a big show and have a kind of a week plus to celebrate with all the artists in town. And it still gave us, um, 
you know, some of that experience without having to do, you know, two shows a month and put the artist up and even just having a retail space. I mean, every day, 10 people could show up and say, what's up? And this guy's friend from Australia is here and he wants to talk. And it's like, Mm -hmm. you know, sometimes you actually have work you got to do too, you know? So, uh, (laughs) you know, right. I do. (laughs) Um, so I guess, you know, before we go, is there any kind of like final thing that you want to, you know, say about your thoughts about like, now that you've done 10 years of this, like, and you're, entering into another 10 years, 20 years, however you want to look at it. Um, like what are, what are kind of your, like your thoughts about one time run in this exact moment? Man, that's deep. Um, you know, when I was listening to Dan kind of talk about, you know, when we, when we ended up deciding to close interstate gallery and, you know, I mean, there was a moment there that we had aspired to, you know, do the art fairs and to work with juxtapose magazine. And there was an art fair that we did where, we actually uh, had the cover of the juxtapose insert for the scope art fair. And I was like, Holy shit, we finally arrived. Like we've all our aspirations we've done. We worked, it it was Doze green who was an artist that Dan alluded to earlier with somebody we really looked up to. So, I mean, there's like all these kind of things that occurred. And, um, and when we look back at it, it was like, we had three, two, three East for five years. We had interstate for five years. We did five years of the mural festival like all things that like the mural festivals was canceled this year because of COVID. Will it come back? It might not, you know? And so we're okay with that. It seems like very natural. It's like five, five, five. So we've now been in the new space for two and a half years coming on three years. You know, I don't see this as being a five-year phase. I think, you know, we, we, we offloaded manufacturing to third parties. We got really tight and focused on our core business. Uh, we got really focused on the core artists that we work with and collaborators to continue to make great product projects with them that are coveted and loved by others. So I think like, if I looked at the next 10 years, I think it's like pretty smooth for us. We're in, we're in a home that works for our business. Um, maybe we need another couple storage units cause there's just stuff that we acquire and that's cool. Um, I see it being like an opportunity for us to continue to explore what publishing means because we're just fully focused on, fo- solely focused on publishing. Like what does it mean to be a publisher and what does yeah. it mean to publish and what is the relevancy of that in our society? Right. Yeah. I think, yeah, I think that's really in kind of this, you know, world that we live in and this community that we are a part of, it's like, um, a lot of people don't change and then they kind of just disappear. And I think for us, it's like, we always want to do something different and look to like what's next and what's new and where's this, where's this going. And though we kind of, you know, we have a good formula that works. I think we're always kind of striving to like get out in front of the curve and not, be afraid to like take some risks and do stuff that makes us uncomfortable and, um, you know, reach out to a new kind of group of artists. And I think, you know, at least for kind of where I see the next five years is, yeah, really just kind of like diving into what's the future, you know? And I think there's a lot of kind of new mediums and processes. And, um, like Jesse said, like the collectible market just as a whole, like in, different areas of you know music and entertainment and sports like there's a lot happening there and i think kind of what we do um really works in that space and also kind of bridges people in maybe more of the streetwear collectible that kind of world um i mean it all crosses over but we've always kind of struggled to like bring this group of people 
together with this. And I think we're like right at the point of like some of the stuff we're working on, I think really um, is going to kind of bridge the gap between that and really um, allow people to kind of see the importance of the artist, like in that process and in the collectibles kind of world. So I think, I think there's a lot of cool new opportunities and I'm, I'm super excited about the next, next five. Cool. Um, I think that was great. Uh, thanks for taking the time. I just want to say thank you, you know, wrapping up the end of the podcast here, um, you know, turning the tables on us. Um, it's been really insightful. Uh, we love the process of working with you and the whole team at Doubleday and Cartwright. It's been a real blessing. Um, we started collaborating right at the beginning of COVID. And we have been together since this whole started nine, you know, nine months of collaborating with you guys. And I look forward to every opportunity to work, work together. And, and um, the insight that you guys have brought, brought to what we do and the way that we have been asked to be um, introspective on the company, the brand, and obviously working on some super secret projects. Um, we're really, really happy to have done that with you and really appreciate you taking time to talk to us today. Of course, anytime. <laughs> All right. Thanks, guys. Bye. Thank you.